There are going to be people, though, however, that will want you to hold their hand the entire way. And you just have to slowly wean them off of holding their hand by um, allowing them to to learn by allowing them to learn from their own mistakes and not uh, being able to gather their data on their own as to what's right and what's wrong. So like with an adult uh, athlete, if you're teaching a push-up, right, and they do the push-up wrong and they feel it in their shoulders where they're not really supposed to and they say, oh man, I felt that wrong. Great, you learn. And then they fix their position and then they feel it where they're supposed to and they say, oh, okay, this is what it's supposed to look like. Welcome to the Art of Coaching Podcast, a show aimed at getting to the core of what it takes to change attitudes, behaviors, and outcomes in the weight room, boardroom, classroom, and everywhere in between. I'm your host, Brett Bartholomew. I'm a performance coach, keynote speaker, and the author of the book, Conscious Coaching. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student interested in all aspects of human behavior and communication. I want to thank you for joining me. And now let's dive into today's episode. Hey, hey, excited to have you guys back for another episode. Listen, we have a lot going on at Art of Coaching that I want to tell you about. I promise to keep it brief, but you're going to hear a lot of things talked about in this episode that we have extra resources for you and they're free. So you're going to hear Tiffany and I, today's guest, talk a lot about the coaching environment, words we use, you know, experiential learning, what have you. I have a presentation that I gave at former, and, and this always is a disheartening thing to hear, Kobe Bryant, you know, rest in peace. But the former Mamba Academy, I gave a presentation on creating the optimal coaching environment. How do we coach uh, kids? How do we address adolescents? Uh, what do we do if we're dealing with personalities that respond to different kinds of verbiage or metaphors or analogies? How do we craft our message dependent on the context and the person? And it is yours entirely for free. And this isn't like $9.99, pay for shipping. It is free. Just go to artofcoaching.com forward slash optimal, optimal, O-P-T-I-M-A-L, optimal, artofcoaching.com forward slash optimal. And you can learn more about this. And this can be applied anywhere. Again, I'm, yes, I started as a strength coach, but now we work with populations ranging from firefighters, people in the tech sector, what have you. So all of these principles can be interchangeable with anybody you work with, okay? Now, Tiffany, today's guest, I wanna talk to you guys about this. Tiffany is a US Coast Guard retired 22 year veteran. So thank you for your service, Tiffany. And I said that in the episode as well. And as an athlete, she was a master's Pan American and national Olympic weightlifter record, weightlifting record holder. And she's also been a personal trainer for over 18 years. And she's worked specifically with adults. And that's where she writes a lot of her research and the heart and hearth of this episode is what is the difference between coaching, whether in an athletic context, the fitness context, the business context, what have you, adults versus kids, you know, and how does that apply with something we call the experiential learning cycle? I shouldn't say we call it that. There is something called the experiential learning cycle. We speak about that. And we're going to do a separate episode on this as well if it intrigues you guys. Now, as you know, we reach out to folks from a wide variety of domains. Many have never been on a podcast before, and we ask them to be raw, unfiltered, and she is just that, guys. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Please, if you haven't done so, leave a review for the podcast. We rely on the reviews of people like you in the iTunes library and just by telling friends to continue to grow. I don't have some big empire where people are marketing this. It is all grass, grassroots. So we appreciate your support. And I know you are going to appreciate this interview with Tiffany. All right, here we go. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the podcast. We have a great conversation lined up today with Tiffany Peltier. Tiffany, thanks for joining me. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Now, if you guys listen to the bio, you heard that Tiffany has had quite a career. She is a 22-year veteran, and we're going to go into a little bit of that here. And where we connected is she had come to one of our apprenticeship workshops. And these are workshops, if you're a new listener, where we focus on a lot of leadership and improv and communication-based principles to help people get more comfortable with chaos, so to speak. 
And, you know, when you look at what it takes to be a better communicator, I think we can all agree. And Tiffany, I know we certainly want your perspective over this call that this is something that you don't just get better at passively. We, we had done something, and this is why Tiffany was such a great fit, where we put out a poll and let's say we got about 120 responses, uh, at least by the time that this interview is going. And most people say that even though they know communication is important, that, you know, 68.6% said they learn how to communicate more effectively through life or job experience. 25.6% said by observing other leaders. And then the rest kind of said online courses or live workshops. Now, the issue with that is, is there's no reflective practice. And Tiffany, I wanted to have you on the show, a big reason, because you've gone through forms of leadership training, you've gone through communication, you know, you've mentioned in prior discussions, a big reason you, you set out to do this is because with your time in the military, there was a lot of jargon, right? And, and just like medical professions can use medical ease, you wanted to get over this. So as, as you come into this conversation, talk to us a little bit more about your past experience with communication training, why you got into it and kind of, you know, what made you crazy enough to want to join a two day improv based course that, (laughs) that really makes you deal with uncomfortable situations with a lot of strangers. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, yeah. So as you said, I had 22 years and a lot of jargon, uh, in that, and we had had some communications training in the coast guard, but again, it was all jargon based. And I was finding after I retired that I was having difficulty speaking to people. Um, and even just, you know, in basic communication, trying to figure out where they were coming from, what they wanted to do, what was, you know, what was needed, especially within my coaching practice. And when I found out that there was a, a, um, your seminar, just kind of going on about how to communicate and it wasn't so much in the strength and conditioning field or within fitness, but in just in general, uh, it really, I really wanted to attend it and figure out some other ways to communicate. I'd read plenty of books. You know, I, I went through uh, school, my master's and we had communications training there. Um, but I always like to know other ways because, you know, you can say the same thing over and over again and try to expect a different result, but it's not going to happen. And I found that sometimes I was doing that. So I just wanted to find some new ways to communicate and, um, just learn more about communication. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I mean, you bring up a good point. It's not, it's not easy to get rid of those things. You know, a doctor that we worked with kind of just mentioned that for him, it's not unusual for a patient to feel alarmed and confused when they leave the doctor's office because they know they have these failures to understand, right, what the doctor was talking right. about. Now, with your time in the military or even your time in, in the fitness or training industry, talk to me about a time, and I know I'm putting you on the spot, that's the nature of the show. Talk to me about a time where you feel like you did something that you were clear as day but it was obvious that there was this failure to understand on the other person's behalf. And more importantly, when did you start realizing that was because of something you did as opposed to, you know, them not having the correct reference point or them quote unquote, not being smart enough or what have you, when did you really notice those kinds of things? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so my first time I ever noticed that I, you know, I just wasn't getting through to somebody was when I was doing Olympic lifting training with them and I was teaching them the snatch, probably one of the most complicated movements in Olympic lifting. And I had used every cue in the book I thought that, you know, that I knew. And I had tried visual, te- I had tried uh, visual cueing, I had tried tactile cueing, I had tried um, audio cueing, everything I had tried just wasn't working. I was not getting through to this individual. And finally, I asked him, I said, okay, well, what are you, you know, where are you from? What are you used to? What, you know, what do you do? And I kind of got a sense from him. He was in the Navy and he was in uh, the aviation rate. And so where that does, where that may not make sense to some people, some of the verbs and some of the uh, words that they use are very different and very succinct. So I try to go back to my Coast Guard career and what I had done and tried to find some different words or cueing or, or things that I had done when I had actually flown in the helicopters, because that's what he was with. And it, it just, it hit me, oh my gosh, okay, I need to speak to this person more along these lines than, 
than what I am so used to because he is from, you know, his background is so different. And um, I finally got through to him after about 45 minutes of discussion back and forth and it worked. And so I, you know, I sat there and my mom had always told me just because you say things one time doesn't mean that people get it. And you might have to say it over and over again. And you have to, you may have to say it in different ways with different tones, with different, you know, use, uh, use your hands, different expressions, stuff like that. And it finally just kind of hit me with him that, you know, a mom was right. And B, I do need to look more at, at how people listen more so than how I communicate, because I think that's really important is if you understand how somebody else hears or how somebody else listens, then you'll be able to communicate better with them. Um, For instance, when I talk to my clients, I like to listen to their, uh, their words as to whether or not they say think or feel. And if they say think a lot, then I know that they're usually, that's usually means that they're a logical person. So I use logical words with them. Uh, when a client says, I feel this, and they use a lot of feeling words, that tells me that they're more of an emotionally based person. So I use emotional words with them. Can you and give me I an example? That- yeah, just like, just because our listeners span such a wide swath, right? And I know this may seem like such a, a remedial question, but it can sometimes be the curse of ignorance on our part. Give me an example of the, the and, and if you can contrast what you were saying and then inserting an emotional base word to use your phrasing. Uh, if you can give us an example of that, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So, so, uh, with my Olympic lifters, um, I'll listen to them and I'll say, so, so how do you believe you did? And, and believe is, is a, it's both sides, right? You can use that in thinking and feeling. How do you believe you did on this? Or, you know, um, how do you believe that, that, um, you can do better on this? And they'll usually answer me with like an emotional person will say, well, I feel like I need more work on my third pull of the snatch, if you will. And I'll say, okay. And, and because they say that I feel, I say, well, what do you feel during that third pull? Do you feel like you're, you know, do you feel like you're not, um, dropping fast enough? Do you feel like you're not punching the bar in the air fast enough? What do you feel like is missing? So that would be an emotional person, emotionally based person. Cause what you're talking about, and just for our audience that isn't, you know, f- familiar with the Olympic lifts, th- this third pole, you're talking about getting into this, uh, overhead support position or where you catch the bar or where you get the bar into this finished position, right? The first pole is yeah. generally depending on where you start from the ground, clearing the knees, right? The second pole is transitioning into what we call in the industry, a power position or a position where, right. Uh, like the hang, if you guys want to look this up and you're not in the field. And then that third pole is kind of the finish. Am I correct in that? Just so we can yeah. orient everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so with that, I'll use a, a different example um, with, um, so I'm also a teacher of personal training. And when I teach students, I'll, I'll ask them, what do you believe is the right answer here? And I'll have one person say, well, I think that the answer is this, this, and this based on this, this, and this. And um, usually their answers will be more uh, more logical and uh, more linear in answer. So it'll be, you know, um, I think the answer is this because of one, two, and three, or A, B, and C. Supporting where, examples. I'm sorry? They're given supporting examples. That's what you mean yeah. by A, B, and C. Yeah, supporting examples in linear order or in in um in the order that they're supposed to be given, where some of my emotional students will give me the supporting examples, not in any specific order, but just uh, just give them to me in the way that they feel is more important, right? So you'll have your logical thinkers that say I think, and they'll give A, B, and C where your emotional thinkers will say, I feel and give maybe C, A, B. Yeah, I think, I mean, what, where, where this resonates with me and it, guys, if you're listening, cause I, I enjoy this stuff as well. I, I have a, a, a presentation called creating the optimal coaching environment. And we talk about how to optimize different, different aspects of learning, like modal strengths, right? Not just modal yep. strengths though, but also uh, just transfer uh, of learning and, and, 
you know, anybody, guys, you can get this for free on artofcoaching.com forward slash optimal. But, you know, to me, what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is a, a lot of this is appealing. Like, is this person an analytical learner who typically does well with rules, guidelines, you know, a lot of detail, nuances, right? This could be facts, figures, statistics. Are they a right. global learner, right? Is it, do they like metaphors, analogies, kind of what I call talking in color, and more importantly, how do they respond to whether it's visual, kinesthetic, auditory, or analytical-based kind of cues and strategies? Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right on spot. And I think what I appreciate specifically about you is, you know, you looked even further and said, all right, well, it's interesting to look at these words and it's interesting to look at these domains. But what about when it comes to teaching adults? Because there, there's so much, and I have an eight-month-old at the time we're recording this. It's almost nine months. And you think about the neurodevelopmental space and you think about all the, the work that we do looking at kids and youth, but a lot of times people forget how to enhance movement competency and get over roadblocks with adults. And I think just to give the audience context, especially those of you that are listening that aren't in the field, you know, you look at some of the, the biggest risks of injury, surgery, and even death as you get older, it's falls, right? And there's all right. these other motor skill, my neighbor, and, and I, she wouldn't, she wouldn't mind me talking about this. At least I don't think so. Um, I, I guess I better ask. No, they're, they're uh, pretty open people. She had to have surgery. She had a brain tumor and she had a midline shift. So she had to go back and essentially learn. And it doesn't oh, wow. matter. Yeah. For the context of this, everybody just needs to know she had, she had brain surgery, traumatic event and uh, screwed up her motor skills. So we've had to go back to just learning basic marching, skipping. She literally can do things with one side of her body that she can't really do with the other, not from a paralysis standpoint, she has the ability, but mm -hmm. just the, the motor units and, and the things sending the signals, right, in layman's terms, aren't firing. And you're right. talking about training and teaching adults in different ways. Go into a little bit of that research that you're doing uh, about, you know, uh, how do we get across to adult populations? How do we address these things? Because I think it's fascinating. Okay, yeah, absolutely. So um, <clears throat> I wrote my research paper on using andragogy, which is the theory of adult learning in coaching adults. And I, spec and I uh, specifically did my paper on coaching adults in CrossFit because I, that's just what's widely available to me right now is um, because I'm a CrossFit coach and I had these other coaches available who are willing to do this. But um, the thing with adults is that I've found that they bring their baggage with them Meaning what? And, but yeah, so by baggage, I mean their past experiences. So uh, for a perfect example is I had a gentleman come in and he's 52 and he used to play football. So he used to do the Olympic lifts and he used to play soccer. So he uh, was, you know, very knowledgeable in shuttle runs and all that other stuff. And he brought all that with him. And so when I tried to teach him when I was teaching him the, uh, the Olympic lifts and doing some stuff with him, um, I kind of challenged what he knew because what he knew was in the past remind, okay, so he's 50 years old, right? So the way they did lifts then is a little, or the way they taught lifts then is a little bit different than the way we teach lifts now. Not only that, it was his football coach, not really a strength and conditioning coach. So there's a huge difference there. And so knowing that I had to go back I had to go into my, you know, uh, uh, what I call my Rolodex of teaching and go through and think of how can I teach this guy with all of his past experiences in what he's already learned. And that's what I mean by baggage. You've got to look at how, what are their past experiences? What did they bring with them? And what are their emotions to that past experience? Uh, if they had a horrible, you know, strength and conditioning coach who uh, was just, told them that they were, you know, a bag of poo or told them that they would never amount to anything. That stuff sticks with those lifts. Well, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, and I don't mean to interrupt, but it's kind of, you know, I think anybody listening, regardless of their profession, you're talking about a bad boss, a bad mentor. You're talking about yeah. somebody that doesn't guide you in a way. And now nobody can hold your hand, right? We're big on art right. of coaching on accountability, but you're talking about just people that uh, they, they have to shake off the stink of that past relationship that could have been detrimental. Right. Yeah. So, and kids don't come with that, right? Kids come with a fresh canvas, if you will. 
and you're teaching them this fresh stuff. Now, they may have had a parent who gave them some, you know, some advice on how to, you know, if it's soccer on how to dribble or how to write cursive or how to do something. And the teacher wants to teach them a different way, but there's not, there's not years of experience and years of emotional ties to that. It's very brand new. So teaching, coaching kids is so much different than coaching adults. Not only that, but adults crave accountability, absolutely crave it. And they may say no, you, they may tell you no all day long, but when you check up on them, you know, if you say, how are you doing? You know, how's this going? They will answer you and they will, they crave it. They crave accountability. And most kids don't, most kids are just like, all right, whatever. You know, um, the one thing that kids and adults do have in common though, when coaching is they want to be told that what they're doing is good, regardless of how they may feel about it. They want to be told you're doing a great job. Yeah, I think that's That's people in general, right? Like even when we look at our, our company reviews and what have you, you know, people get, I think we all get caught up on wanting positive feedback and rightfully so, you know, you don't want a a good coach and we use the coach universally, Mm -hmm. a good leader. You'd be crap if you just correct people and you don't give them, you know, some sense of, Hey, nice job with X, Y, and Z great attention to detail with this project, especially the color and the word choice. But at the same time, we can become a little bit dependent if we're not careful on the coach, whereas like a coach or a leader or a manager, again, using the terms synonymously here, your job is to not make somebody dependent on you. So we're like, where do we draw that line, Tiffany, of making sure they're not dependent on feedback at the same time and they can be autonomous, right? Uh, Learners, creators, facilitators themselves. Right. That's a great question. So um, one uh, one of the things that I hit on in my research paper this is a, a law of, so Bob Pike, uh, Bob Pike is a, a very well-known uh, adult educator, and he goes to a lot of businesses and works with their HR department and talks to them about teaching adults. And one of his laws is that people don't argue with their own data. And it says, if through experience, a person makes their own information, they will believe it in, um, they will believe it more. It is the job of the facilitator, coach, or instructor, or boss to ensure the learner is guided towards the correct information. So with that being said, um, there's a point at which we have to turn from coach, instructor, boss, leader, mentor. We have to turn from that into facilitator, where we're facilitating their learning, and we let them figure this stuff out on their own, right? So adults crave independence as well. They want to Most of them want to be able to do things on their own and they want instruction, but they want to be able to do it on their own. So if when we turn from mentor, instructor, boss to facilitator, we're now guiding them through and them learning on their own. And when they make their own mistake, they can tell. They'll be able to say, oh man, I did that wrong. You did, but you're learning. So that's great. Right. So, um, There are going to be people, though, however, that will want you to hold their hand the entire way, and you just have to slowly wean them off of holding their hand by um, allowing them to to learn by allowing them to learn from their own mistakes and not uh, being able to gather their data on their own as to what's right and what's wrong. So, like with an adult uh, athlete. If you're teaching a push-up, right, and they do the push-up wrong and they feel it in their shoulders where they're not really supposed to, and they say, oh, man, I felt that wrong. Great, you learn. And then they fix their position, and then they feel it where they're supposed to, and they say, oh, okay, this is what it's supposed to look like. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. I mean, what you're talking about, and I, I hadn't been familiar with Bob until you had mentioned something, but one thing, the very little I do know about him other than your research is that like me, he's, he's a big believer that lecture-based, you know, learning is, is not effective. Right. And, right. and I think Absolutely. to give, to give people insight, cause I don't, I don't know that I've talked about this on the show. You know, I worked for an organization where for many years I had the chance to go lead workshops internationally and I loved it. It was a great, it was a great experience. It, it helped me grow in many ways, but predominantly they, even though they were a mix of like lecture and hands-on a lot, I mean, a lot was lecture. And that has a place in scientific communities because you do need to go through the research. But 
when we started right. our apprenticeship, like our, our workshops, we knew that, yeah, th- too much death by PowerPoint and it, it's spoon feeding. And it's, it's like that old quote that spoon feeding in the long run just teaches people nothing but the shape of the spoon. And right. what, what I find fascinating, and I don't know if you're with me on this or not, and feel free to disagree is there, there's so many people that kind of use that quote of, oh, you know, tell me and I forget, teach me, I remember, involve me and I learn. And I think that was attributed to Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. Yet, yet so many people do, especially I know in, in science-based industries, certainly in strength and conditioning, we seem to want to be spoon-fed. I mean, we, we know that we openly advertise our stuff as, hey, this is not death by PowerPoint. You know, if you like come get involved and we took special care. I mean, you saw it firsthand. The first yeah. 10 slides that we do show make that clear of saying, hey, this is what we can do. We can teach you. Uh, we, we can give you tools to implement. We can't make you implement them. Like there's no script to coaching or leadership or life. We're trying to teach you how to think instead of what to think. And then we even included a slide that says, even if we spoon feed you, like the chewing or swallowing still up to you yet. We will have people sometimes that are like, Hey, despite the 263 slides we got over two days, we wish there was more slides. And what is it? Do you think and it's just feel free to ponder this, right? Moments of silence are fine. But what mm-hmm. is it that has made our society so dependent, so, so desired to like want drop down lists and how to manuals and spoon feeding? Why do we want this security so much where we, we've like eroded experiential learning and accountability? Yeah. Wow. That's a great question. Um, and feel free just to riff on it. You know, you don't have to, nobody's going to look back on this and be like, well, like what, what's your raw opinion of why we seem to be so dependent on, on, on all those things? Uh, honestly, so I've had this conversation with my mom many times. And honestly, I think it's because we're not taught to really think anymore. You know, I mean, like debate and really have think and debate and really have a, um, really forced to have to think completely on your own about something and like have skin uh, in the game. I, I think a lot of yeah. people can kind of just fade to black and, you know, don't have to worry about, you know, div- like you said, I, I think, I think knowing how to think comes from putting yourself in situations, right? Because you have to, yeah. like, there's a difference between uh, whether you have experience or exposure to something. If I have exposure to something, I could watch, right? I could be an observer. Right. If I have, if I have experience, there's direct participation in something. And so do you think it has to do with a little bit of that? We've become this voyeuristic society that just wants information, but necessarily doesn't always really have the desire to do something with it. We, we almost hoard it as social status or what? Uh, I think that has a lot to do with it. You know, um, when I was, you know, when, when you were growing up, when we were growing up, I don't think you're much, uh, your age is much different than mine, but I remember when we brought home the first computer and before that I had to go search for stuff in the, you know, at the library for the encyclopedia stuff wasn't just immediately available. So I think that, I think the immediately availableness of everything in the world is what's, is, is a part of what's happening because now, you know, people can experience in video games stuff that you used to have to experience firsthand. Um, for example, I, um, I don't know if this was on my bio or not, but I'm, uh, I'm a tactical athlete and we have, there's this, uh, competition called the tactical games and it's a two day, uh, two day event where there's three battles. They call them battles, three battles on Saturday and three battles on Sunday and it is what kids do playing video games. Well, yeah, unpack it, this for a second. What do you mean t- tactical? When I think tactical athlete, I think of how we refer to a lot of men and women, you know, and again, I know you served, but I think of people still that kind of, we, we've used that term in the performance industry now to kind of mm-hmm. talk about people in that population that we work with. But this sounds more like a, a competition of sorts. D- give me an example it, of tactical athlete. Yeah, so it is a competition, and a lot of the a lot of the people who uh, participate in this they are uh, former military, uh, present day military, law enforcement, uh, retired law enforcement, and there are some civilians. But it's a um, it's a competition where you're wearing your 
you're wearing a, a, a like a, tac a tactical weighted vest. You've got a pistol, a sidearm. You've got a rifle. You have your ammo and you're running. You like the one of the events that I just did, we on three, two, one, go, you shoot, we are pistol, you kneel, you shoot your rifle, you run 500 yards, you climb a rope, you uh, run a 300 yards, you low crawl underneath a, um, a wall, like a, a, a lifted wall, run 500 yards, climb a 30 foot rope, run, uh, run 800 yards, climb a, Good a, Lord. a short wall, Huh? I said, good Lord, we're not done. I'm, I'm waiting for when you have to fight a rhinoceros. Keep going. Yeah, we're not. Yeah, we're not done yet. So you run 800 yards, you climb a short wall, run 100 yards, climb a medium sized wall, run 100 yards, climb a tall wall, which the tall wall is about eight to nine feet, run 300 yards. And then you have to, uh, we had to climb over a 12 foot concrete, two foot wide wall, jump down run 400 yards, climb over a cargo net, run to the firing line, fire pistol, fire 20 rounds of pistol and 20 rounds of rifle and you're done, right? So that's an actual experience, but kids are playing these on video games. So the, the ability to be able to just watch that on the video game, which you can do now with everything, there's you know basketball video games, there's football video games, just being able to do that on the video games and then not having to go out and do it in person, I think that is where, um, that's where- That's uh, where the trade-off is. Yeah, I mean, I, th I, think, is. Yeah. I think there's some, I mean, it's the same thing, whether it's, I mean, video games or mm -hmm. people that go to conferences or people that, uh, you know, engage on social media. What we're talking about here is people that think you get better at something by observing it. And that goes I back think, to what yeah. we mentioned at the beginning of, of what was fascinating in the, in the research in my space of how do we define effective leadership? And there's tons of debates on this over the past hundred years of literature research. And I'm not, I'm not embellishing, but what they find is they, they don't even get along on how they define leadership. You know, many define no. leadership as a process of influence, you know, where you influence the motions, attitudes, behaviors of others. And, and I agree with that. I think the one common thing we see in the coaching literature and leadership literature, and this is why, you know, we, we see them synonymous is the thing they do agree on is both are a social practice that require communication. But then for right. some, they think that, oh, well, I get better at communication through life. What? You know, or I get better yeah. at communication through observing great communicators. Again, it's like saying you become better at the cello by watching a great celloist, even if you don't play the, you can't do that. You have to have reflective practice. So my, like my question to you is this, knowing, like getting, knowing that you do so much background on the science of helping adults learn, right? And, and one of those notions being about them being self-directed and autonomous, that obviously has to include some level of reflection, some level of evaluation or, or something. Yeah. You know, talk to us more about that, whether it's the type of reflection you partake in in your own professional development, the kind that you try to make available in that environment. How do we make people more self-aware so they don't think it's just a matter of showing up and observing, but actually, again, having this deliberate engagement and reflection with a thing or a skill. Yeah, so that's a really great question. Um, so to, to answer the one about for myself, my own self-reflection is anytime I get a little bit of time during the day, I'll get alone and it's usually at the gym and I have to go into the restroom because it's the only place I can be alone. But, <laughs> but I'll look at, okay, what did I do these last few hours? Who did I affect? Was it a positive effect? Was it a negative effect? If it was a negative effect, what did I do and how can I change it? And that has not been easy for me. Um, I learned to do that when I was in the military and I became a uh, higher enlisted rank where I was in charge of people. And I'd had some really bad leaders and some really good leaders. But I had always just thought, well, because of my rank, because of the leader that I had, um, because of my rank, people will listen to what I say and do what I need them to do, which is so off base. Um, your position, your position power or your rank or your job title, whatever is minuscule on the, um, in, uh, in what people 
really care about, right? Most people want people power. Most people will look at a person and say, okay, are can I under can I relate to them? Are they gonna relate to me? Are they gonna care? Like French and like Raven's bases of power, right? Like you're talking right. about legitimate power yes, being the, power. the job. If I have if I have if I'm a director, if I'm a manager, if I'm this, oh, they're gonna listen to me. Where in reality we know that referent power, like you're saying, yep. and you and yep. you stated yep. it well, uh, how much do I relate to this person? That's so much more impactful today. Yeah. So I I reflect on all of that myself. Um, and when it comes to when it comes to my students or my athletes, I'll sit down with them after our after our session and I'll ask them, I'll and this is this is called the experiential learning cycle. What I use with them is I will sit down and I'll ask them, what happened? What did you do? How did you feel about it? And it makes them go back through the hour-long session or through the eight-hour you know, training day that we had, whatever it was, it makes them take a minute and think back to what they did. Okay, what did I do? Um, was it successful? Was it unsuccessful? What did I do to change that if it was unsuccessful to be successful? And I find that asking a person after everything, how did it go? What did you do? What went well? What didn't? And then taking a moment to let them think, like you said, silence is fine. Most people are very uncomfortable with that silent pause. Oh, I'm like that. I, I mean, I can yeah. be, I, not to interrupt, but like this being a conversation, I, I'd be, it would behoove me not to admit, like, especially when I'm leading some of our groups in like our coalition group or what have you, I feel immense, immense pressure and it's self-induced, right? But I feel immense pressure to fill the void because these calls, whether we meet weekly or biweekly, and it depends on, you know, which program somebody's in, I want a packet filled with information as, as much as right. I can. And I mean, helpful stuff, right? Not, not, not like information just as if it's all created equal, but then I have to remember, dude, like shut up, you know, but then I worry, all right, well, if you don't kind of give enough perspective, are they going to feel like they're getting enough? And so much of that is derived from the insecurity of, of wanting to help and not knowing if you're being helpful enough. Yeah. And so the other thing that I find, and you, I found it interesting that you say you want to pack it with information is I have found that that silent pause can be more informative sometimes than actually speaking because yeah. it gives, like, it gives my, my student or my athlete the time to actually think about what they did and what happened. And nine times out of 10, they're very appreciative for that silent pause. And they, you know, uh, the other day, I just had one of my athletes say, thank you for letting me think about that because it really helped me to see how far I've come because he was really down on himself, right? He uh, he didn't think he was doing really good on, on one of the movements I was having him do. And he didn't realize it, but throughout the entire session, we were adding weight and his his movement was, was fine. It was per, it wasn't perfect, but it was fine. And, you know, there's always little things that, um, we can critique and fix, but, um, he was doing really, really well. And when I had him take a minute just to think about it, he's like, wait, Tiffany, did you add weight during that time? I said, yeah, I did. He said, really? And I said, yeah, you got up to, you know, however many pounds he's, and it really turned him around. He said, oh man, that's awesome. So I did really do well. And I said, yeah, you, you did. But it took that silent pause a minute for him to think back and say, wait, she put weight on. And then that's when he got, uh, that that's when he found, you know, that he was actually doing well. So I think that silent pause can be extremely informative. Yeah. And so I was going to ask you when, in your research, when you look at, you know, if somebody's coming up to you and they're saying, okay, Tiffany, coaching adults versus kids, what's the difference, right? And, and you mentioned some other things about accountability and things that you saw in your research regarding that. Um, but you, do you find that from a, a communication standpoint, these pauses, you know, what else that we may be overlooking, even if it's so obvious, what are other things in your research that you tend to see uh, as it pertains to either teaching methods or communication strategies or something else? Yeah. Um, so the one thing I found with uh, adult learners or adult athletes, if you will, is their need to know why and to be involved in it. Um, I found in my research that the majority of the the majority of the athletes, when they came in, 
they would look at the workout that was written on the board or they would look at it the night before and they would come in and have questions. Why are we doing this? What does this actually, you know, what does this help? What are we going to, what benefits are we going to see from this? Why, why am I doing this? Where kids sometimes ask why they just, I think they ask why just for the sake of asking why it's not like they're actually able to process the reasoning behind the why. Uh Oh, you might have some people that battle you on that though. Like when you, cause I think you want to talk about like what, you know, when we're talking about kids, identify what you're defining as that group. Cause you might have some people that say, well, time out, you know, my, my kid is very, you know, insightful and introspective and, and this and that. So unpack that a little bit, because I know there's going to be some people that are like, uh, uh-uh, that's an absolute, yeah. what would you say to those folks? Yeah, absolutely. So when I say why I'm looking, I am also looking at the fact that adults will, um, look at it and they will put it back to their past experience. So goes back to the fact that I said they, they come in with baggage. When adults come in with that baggage or their experience, they will attach that to every single thing that you do and to everything that they're going to learn. And they, when they ask, why are we doing this or how is this helpful? They will look at it and go, okay, what is my past experience? Is this really going to be helpful? Then they'll also look at it as to how can I implement this now or in the future? So, um, like, let's just say a movement, let's say a clean and jerk, right? Where you, and I always use this one as my example, because it's really easy for adults um, to understand is a clean and jerk is where you take the bar from the ground, you lift it to your shoulders, and then you put it up overhead. Okay. So I have adults that say, well, why do we need to do this? I say, okay, do you have a tall shelf in your house? Yes. Well, have you had to put a heavy box on there? Yes. How did you do it? Well, I picked it up, I got it to my chest, and then I pushed it overhead. Like, okay, so there you go. I said, did you have any, you know, uh, did your form look like this? Oh, no. Did it hurt after you were, you know, after you put that on the shelf? Absolutely. Okay, now I understand. So when I say that about the difference between adults and kids and asking why is that adults ask why to put it to their past experience, their current experience, and then they look at how to use it in the future. Where most kids don't do the present and the future, they look at, um, they will look at, well, I didn't learn it this way before, but okay, I'm learning it now, so fine. Uh, there's very few kids that actually, and I'm not saying they're not out there. Sure, I'm not, yeah, not yeah. There's always going to be, yeah, you're not speaking yeah. in absolutes. You're, you're talking generally, but what the research kind of shows. Right. Yeah. Most kids don't look at, well, how can I use this in the future? How is this going to help me in the future? So that's, that's what I mean by the asking why and, and, uh, and the potential use. No, that helps. Cause I remember reading in your, your article and, you know, we'll want to talk at the end where people can find this research or gain access, whether it's to email you or what have you, cause I think they need to read it. You do talk about outlining these six adult learning principles. And I think, you know, going back, you use the word learner, correct? I, you know, I, for this show, using the word learner is way more appropriate than athlete because not everybody listening is an athlete. Now we're not going to get into the whole mantra of like, well, if you have a body, you're an athlete. Like, Yes. You know, like we're talking about people that are in business, the military, you know, education and what have you. So, but I remember these six adult learning principles and please stop me if any of them are wrong was like you said, the learners need to know why and really unpack that. Why, what, how, not just saying that, right. The self-concept of the learner, you know, and, and I think that one can be tricky for people to understand but really saying, is this somebody that is more autonomous? Are they self-directing? Are they not, right? Like, what is their form of yeah. self-efficacy, right? That's tied right. to self-concept. Like, there's all things we feel like we're not, like, I, you know, words come more naturally to me than images, meaning I'm not a skilled graphic designer. Now, if I wanted to be, I could certainly learn that. But, like, my desire to do that and my self-concept of what that would bring and and the amount of, like, you know, work it would take relative to the payoff and what have you, just not there, right? Right. But I, I'd be, it's not you. Um, right, exactly. You know, prior experiences, the resources. And then I think another big one is readiness to learn. Yeah. You know, a lot of times adults can come in and, you know, whether I'm talking to my mom or somebody else, even if I go speak at a business conference, I'll inevitably, because of my background, get asked, so, hey, what's a great training session for this, right? Like that person's demonstrating a readiness to learn, you know, or at least take on a new skill or people that have questions about the subject matter that, you know, at the end, will will ask something thoughtful, insightful. They're demonstrating that where kids, 
may not always. And again, nobody's speaking in absolutes. There's very curious children. You know, I, we're going to make, Oh yeah, absolutely. Because you know, somebody I know is listening and saying, well, my, you know, I have a two-year-old in the back seat that on a four hour car ride goes, why daddy? Why, you know, why, why is this? But like you said, they're asking for general kind of purposes. They're not acting so they can right. project into the future in terms of a mental model of, you know, preparing for the next time they see those things. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then orientation to learning, right? Like, are they problem centered? Uh, do they understand context, right? The situations. So, you know, are, are most of those kind of just saying, Hey, yes, these are all things that kids have and develop. It's just that adults have developed them at a higher level based on where they're at in life. So there's nuances of how to address those relative to children. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, um, absolutely. So kids are, kids have all of these, um, you know, there are kids that are just, are not ready to learn, but it's not on a, it's not really in a, um, let's see, how do I put this? It's dimensional not or a, a hierarchical or like, uh, are you thinking about like a dichotomy, something like either, or yeah, sort of, but they're, they're not prepared to use all of that information right then and there. And, and also again in the future, right? So where they have, where they want to know the why and the when and the how, and they're learning it they they are like sponges. So they're taking all of that in and so, okay, here it is. They're like a sponge taking everything in where an adult is more like a sponge being wrung out. Ooh. All right. I, yeah, yeah. I think that makes so, sense. I mean, they still have to take it in to wring it out, but a hundred percent where, you know, you're talking about where they are in that cycle. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So as kids get older, they may, um, they may, uh, express some of these, you know, some of these attributes or the, these, um, uh, six, um, Attri attributes oh, works. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where they may, you know, they may say, Oh, okay, well, this is why we're doing this. And I understand that, you know, like I understand now why we're going on a seven hour car ride so that we can go see grandma. Right. But it's not, we're on a seven hour car ride so that we can go see grandma, but now we're going to have to go back on a seven hour car ride to go back home, to do this, to do that. Right. So it's, it's there, there may be a little bit of ringing out, but not a full ringing out of the sponge. They're still just collecting everything. And the, so I got into this question with my research paper as to what is actually an adult. Um, I looked at the research of just the CrossFit, uh, the CrossFit community and the CrossFit community is growing exponentially in the, in the ages of 30 and above, which really surprised me. It did and it didn't because of the, of just how everybody wants to be so healthy and active now. But we also have a very large group of teenagers, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 year olds, you know, just in that area, just before you can drink. And I don't really know what the age for adult is. It could be 16 based on their, how they're able to communicate based on how they're able to uh, look at their experiences and, and do say what a 30 year old would do. So I don't have an actual age in there. I was just looking at people over the age of 20. Well, I, I know, I I know this, I know the research just when we were doing stuff on, on uh, modal strengths and, and quote unquote learning preferences and what have you, we found that they classified in the research adolescent as 10 to 23. And that made sense oh, wow. to me, although okay. yeah, it was surprising, right? But it did yeah. make sense also because as you know, from anatomy and physiology, the prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain that largely, and I'm, I'm being, you know, uh, speaking generally here just for sake of time in the audience, but the, the part of the brain that's the seat of consciousness, right? What makes us, right. us rational decision-making. So much of that is tied in, even though, yes, rationality is tied into emotion. And, and many argue, and I think convincingly so, especially Antonio Damasio, that emotion is, is underplayed a lot and we need to give it more credit. But um, oh, the, the point being, that they had mentioned that 10 to 23 is adolescence. Now, I'm sure there's 30 other researchers that would argue that, but I found fairly significant, consistent research that stated that. So that gives us an orientation point too. Well, that's great. Yeah, I didn't know that. I'll have to um, get that research from you for sure. Yeah. Um, 
but no, I, th- I think what, what this goes to tie this together, it, it, it's a lot of when we talk about great adults, kids, what's the difference? You are talking about their place in the experiential learning cycle, something that I became familiar with only when we started uh, kind of going into my doctorate and designing our apprenticeship live workshop is what, what you're saying is, again, there's, there's concrete experience, right? What happened? <laughs> There's right. reflection. Okay, what what did I experience there? What like what were the actual like behaviors, consequences, all those things? Mm-hmm. Then there's that conceptualize, which is all right. Well, why did this happen? Not just what did I experience and what happened, but why did it happen? And then finally, application. You know, which is that active experimentation and improvisation. What will I do? And the way I'm hearing it, and the way it seems to make sense to me, is kids very much will ask what happened, and they'll try to make sense of what they experienced. But they don't always go into, they may ask, why did that happen? But again, the level of cognition or conceptualization, the amount of resources they're able to draw in to make sense of the situation and the context is not as complete always as an adult. Now, uh, I also think, and and we talked about this, we have some very non-observant adults, and that's why we have the spoon feeding problem. So the whole thing really seems to be centered around some form of experiential learning cycle and where you sit on this. I mean, I think it's clear. I definitely need to do an episode on this in the future and, and dive deeper. Yeah. Oh, the, the experiential learning cycle is amazing. Uh, we actually use the experiential learning cycle in the Coast Guard. When I was, uh, my final, <clears throat> my final days before I retired, I was an instructor at the Maritime Law Enforcement Academy in Charleston. And we teach, uh, boarding officers, Coast Guard law enforcement, how to deal with, with situations. And we use the experiential learning cycle because we use role playing and we put the, we put the officers in a situation where they may have to subdue a subject where, uh, they may have to, uh, you know, just talk to a subject or whatever. And when their, when their, uh, role play is done, we bring them back and we say, okay, what happened? And we put them through that experiential learning cycle and nine times out of 10, they learn so much from going through that. And they understand. And then when it comes time for their evaluation, they've fixed what they did wrong because it's like Bob Pike says, people don't argue with their own data, right? So that goes hand in hand with the experiential learning cycle. When you ask them what happened, what did you do? Why did it happen? And they have to go through it in their heads. They're like, oh man, I should have done this, this, and this, or, oh, I did this and it was great. So they really do learn more and then they can fix what needs to be fixed or they continue doing what they've done right. Yeah, I think that's well said. I, I remember reading in, in some of the research done by Owen Hargy, who said uh, they were talking about the process of association and how we socialize, right? And we all know that our mm-hmm. earliest ancestors who lived in groups were more likely to survive than those that were alone. And so we know that communication skills have been critical or central role as the research puts it in human evolution. But they talk about, you know, the essence of communication is the formation and expression of an identity. And we did an episode. I I don't remember the exact number. I can look it up quickly and I will. This is what makes it a real show, right? People actually, uh, we take, it was episode 117 where I talk about impression management and the roles that we play yet people think they don't role play. Right. And we talked about right. this too. And, and maybe you, I, I mean, you, you demonstrated it so well, but one of our more popular episodes was coaching as improv because it was pretty uh, polarizing. There were some people that, you know, Oh, I, you know, I don't improvise. And I, I think of this and, you know, when I lead, I have a plan and I have contingencies and it's like, well, one, listen to the episode uh, Two, I think people, when they think improv and role-playing, they only think about theater. They think that it's stupid stuff, sketches, right. That is not it. Like, talk to me about like what what role playing means in your mind and and the way that it's brought. I mean, again, you were in a room with eight to ten other strangers who you did not get to know. You didn't even know the names of them right away. No. Like, <laughs> how how does role playing help you? Oh, um, wow. Okay, so in your class, when I remember the very first one, people were really kind of hesitant to to improv and role play, and um, I was like, okay, I'm just going to get the most out of this that I possibly can. I took what I learned in that class and I've, and I've used it coaching and, and it made me realize that I've actually been using it. So, uh, let's say if I'm coaching, a if I'm coaching someone and they all of a sudden 
you know, they're like, oh man, I just can't do this. I can't, I can't do, let's say they're doing a box jump. I can't do this box jump. Okay, well, let's do a step up. Well, I can't do a step up. So anytime I think that you modify a movement or you scale a movement, you're improving because it's, it's going against what was actually written or what you are intending to do for that person in the first place. Um, the other thing that, that I've, that I've found is when in my warmups, I like to do games with, with my athletes. And if, if I set up a game that's for 10 people, because I think I'm going to have 10 people, but only eight show up and it's only going to work with 10 people, I have to figure out something to do on the spot. So that's, to me, that's a, that's a form of improv trying to figure out what to do, right? If the shit hits the fan, what are you going to do different? It's, you know, in the, in the military, it's what's your plan A, what's your plan B, what's your contingency plans, right? So I, to me, after taking that class and really looking at improv and really kind of uh, reflecting on all of it, I, I think most co- most coaches and instructors and facilitators do it every day. They just don't know they're doing it because it's not called improv to them. It's a contingency plan. It's called life. Or it's plan B. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's called it's, life. It's for called sure. life, right? And that, that's a central thing we talk about in the episode is how many people woke up knowing every single thing was going to happen. And again, you always have that person that's like, well, yeah. I have my planner. I'm like, shut up. You don't know. Yeah. Like right now, guess what, <laughs> Tiffany? You have no idea where we're going next in this conversation. You don't know if it's going to end. You know, and right. uh, that's that's how life is. Life is improv. So when people say, well, you know, I don't know, like improv. I mean, what you're talking about is extemporaneous decision-making, right? Like resourcefulness. You're talking about all these <laughs> things that, you know, and, and we go over the the research definition because it might surprise people to know that there is a lot of research on improv and, and leadership development. And we talk about it in that. Yeah, we, we have covered a lot and I want people to be able to read your research. I want people to get familiar with you. Uh, so we've come to the end, but before we end, I got to put you kind of on the proverbial hot seat a little bit of, of having some fun. <laughs> so, uh, if you've listened to the show, you know, that we do something, uh, and, and we go back and forth with the name, but we just call it kind of the gray area or black and white thinking a little bit. Uh, you could mm-hmm. either one where I'm going to give you a famous quote, right? And you're going to have to argue where that quote is true, right? Like where you agree with it and where okay. you think it's absolute bullshit. And and I choose these quotes purposefully because these are quotes that most people would be like, oh, yeah, like, you know, that's that's totally right. All right. So to, and today you've got a hard one and it is like oh, a quintessential great. one that people use on email lines, on inspirational sh- stuff. I, I had to catch myself there, anything like that. All right. Yeah. So. And you can choose whether you want to argue for it or against it first. I don't care, but you've got to do both, all right? This one okay. from no other than Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> oh, great. Thanks, Brett. <laughs> be the change you want to see in the world. Yes. Okay. Be the change you want to see in the world. Where it went, like, make an argument, a point for that being bullshit, and make a point for it being, of course, true. Okay. So I, I'm going to go for the harder one first Smart move. of it being bullshit to me. Um, so be the, be the change you want to see in the world. Well, okay. So bullshit first off is you may, you may change, you may change yourself and you may change one person, but if you change that one person, you're not actually changing the world, especially in, and I'm gonna kind of go on the hot seat. I'm gonna put myself kind of in the hot chair right now, especially in the world where, world we're living today um, and how people own other people, right? So there's so many people that I see that aren't really truly themselves. And you could change but if you allow somebody else to dictate your life or you allow somebody else to dictate what what you think is right what you want to do then you can change all you want you can try to change all you want but if you continue to let that person dictate you then you're not changing anything and you're not changing the world yeah i mean if i'm hearing you right it's saying hey if you let the world dictate and i and i know this one's personal for me because i got myself into a lot of trouble following this like as a, as a kid, as a teenager, as I talk about in my book, you know, I, I went through a phase where my friends started getting really flaky. High school was an interesting time. You right. know, I saw people that just weren't committed doing damaging stuff to their bodies. I was, and I was pretty judgmental, right? Uh, but like, I just saw these things that I didn't agree with. 
and I very much tried being perfect. And we know that that is absolutely an awful idea. And yeah. I tried to address my training in a perfect way, my nutrition. I mean, it, it led to me essentially having an eating disorder because I was eating, you know, basically low fat and low carb, but all these magazines, I was 15, right? Said you yeah. should do. People have heard this story again and again, um, you know, and I, then I would go work out and I'd see somebody quit on the treadmill earlier. So I'd run five minutes longer, you know, or, yeah. you know, somebody would get up uh, at a certain time. So I'd try to get it. And I just wore myself. I mean, it took a long time, you know, not, not with the exercise and nutrition, but eventually just burn out and it's not a healthy mm -hmm. way to live. And if you're constantly nitpicking all the other things and, and thinking you want to change, you can really neglect self-care and get over, over involved in things. So I, I can agree, right. even though we know what Gandhi was saying, the point of the exercise is to do what you and I just did, right? Have some fun with it. Yeah. Go. Now, where do you, where do you agree with it? Um, yeah. So, uh, before I go there, I just want to let you know, the reason why I came up with it so fast is because I have a similar history that you, that you do. I, um, I was actually using hydroxy cut with ephedrine back in the day Oh wow! and not eating and, you know, trying to get to that shape magazine person. Cause that's what was supposed to be beautiful. Even though I was not, was nowhere near created like that. Um, I'm six foot and almost 200 pounds of muscle. Like I am not going to look like a shape magazine model, right? So I actually ended up in the hospital with heart palpitations um, and wearing a heart monitor for a week. So that's why I got there so quick. So I was like, wait, this is what this is what that means to me. So I have somewhat of a similar past that you do. Yeah, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, thank, I appreciate yeah. you sharing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, where it would be true or where I would go with that, um, that quote to be true is I, I believe that if you, right, so if you give love, I believe that you'll get love. Now, not all the time. There are going to be those people who just treat you like shit no matter what, right? But um, I found that as a coach, when I actually care for my athletes or my students when I'm teaching, when I actually show that I care, um, I have seen changes in that class where people who may not have spoken with one another actually end up speaking with each other. Or I've seen it change people's uh, demeanor when they come in, right? So I don't know if it's changing the world, but I do know that when I treat someone with respect and I show them that I care, that that usually gives me a better outcome than if I didn't. So, and I know this isn't going along with that it's completely true, but I do believe that I that you get what you give, right? So if, if you're just an asshole to everybody, people are just gonna be an asshole to you too. But if you show people you care, that might help turn them around. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. I think that's clear. All right, going on to the next one. What is, and this is the last one, so you can take a breath. What, if, you know, okay. people typically ask the most common questions I, I've gotten forever and why did we we do so many free downloads where people can get resources on these things on artofcoaching.com and brettbartholomew.net is I always got hammered with, hey, what book should I read? What advice do you have? All these kinds of things, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I want to know, you know, what is the worst advice you've ever received. And again, I know it may be tough to recall the, so I don't care if it's top 10, top five, or your top one, but as it pertains to being a leader or standing out in your field or anything like that, what is some of the worst advice you've either ever received or heard somebody else give? Oh, okay. So the, my top one, that's easy. That was uh, when I was in the Coast Guard, it goes back to one of my leaders. And this is uh, kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, where my position with position power or legitimate power. Uh, my my mentor and leader at the time, he said, don't worry, they'll do what you say because you outrank them. Ooh. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah. So yeah, I learned real quick that that was not true. And um, it was definitely, it was definitely a hard lesson to learn. But when I look back, I am so grateful that I learned that lesson uh, because I learned a lot about myself, what I can take, what I can't take, and what I can do and what I can't do as far as leadership is concerned. And I think that's super important for leaders is to know, know their boundaries and know their limits 
uh, because you will have people who will push those. And uh, I learned that was probably the number one. That's the one I always remember. And if yeah, I can't think of any other ones, but that one was top list number one of all time, the worst leadership advice I'd ever been given. Yeah, I love it. I appreciate that. And I, I agree wholeheartedly. Tiffany, where can people reach out to you? Where can they find you? I'm, I'm super grateful for your time. I know that this is one of many conversations we'll continue to have. And I definitely, we, we are going to be doing a second level of the apprenticeship. You know, we continue to refine the beta that we're in. Um, we just, you know, I used to yeah. worry that everything had to be perfect and this and that. We, we really teach it differently every time, but we are in the process of creating a, a four day, like kind of facilitator course and your butt better oh, be there. Awesome. But um, yeah, where, I can, will, sure. where can people reach out to you? How can they support your work? Where the, can they learn more about your research? Um, so they can just email me. I'm not, like I said, I'm not real big on social media. <laughs> I probably should be a little bit better at it, but um, my email address, they can email me. It's um, tiff.m as in Mike dot Peltier, my last name, at F-I-T-W-T-I-F-F dot com. So that's fitwithtiff.com. Um, I'm also, I am on Instagram and it's at F-I-T underscore W underscore T-I-F. Beautiful. They can reach you through there. Yeah, we'll put them all in the show notes as usual, guys. Our team does a great job with the show notes, Ali Kirchner and other contributors. So, you know, make sure to check that out. Tiffany, I want to thank you again from everybody at Art of Coaching. You, It's been great getting a chance to know you, interact with you, coach you, and also learn from you. So thank you for your time, and, and we'll look forward to meeting again in the future. Yes, thank you so much. Again, I was honored to be here. I greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Guys, this is the Art of Coaching Podcast. If you want more, remember we have courses, we have free book chapters, we have free free presentations, all these things on artofcoaching.com. You can find them. It's so easy. Just go there. All these questions about books to read, what do you recommend, advice you have, artofcoaching.com will have that for you. This is Brett Bartholomew, Tiffany Peltier, signing off.